people adopt these things as a truth and don't even question why it's a truth. Yeah. Like when we go back to this table concept, like why do we call this a table? And why does it matter that we call it a table? Because people need labels. Like labels are important. But at the same time, it's like why like why is it not okay for a woman to dress however she wants to dress? Why is it uncomfortable for you to see two men kissing or like showing affection to each other? Like why? And if you can't answer that, then you need to kind of dig deeper. Like I, I think children are the best example of that. You know, Lila is not really at this place yet where she's like, why, 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 why? But she does ask why sometimes. And I think the more we can look at the world of this children, the easier the life would be. You're listening to Chats with Kat, where I catch up with my fellow millennials every week to share their journey of self-actualization, overcoming fear, and paving the way for a soul's purpose to shine through. Let's start that right here, right now. Today's guest is none other than Joel Daniels. He is a storyteller, author of a book about things I will tell my daughter, and the man behind one of my personal favorite inspirational Twitter pages. I was drawn to Joel very early into following him on Twitter because I was taken aback at how vulnerable and thought-provoking his messages were. It's not very often that men publicly display their inner thoughts the way that he does, and it was very easy to see why he had over 29,000 people keeping up with what he was thinking. Throughout our chat, I wanted to learn about how being raised in New York has impacted his creative trajectory, what his experience being a single father to his beautiful two-year-old daughter Lila has taught him, how he has come to embrace vulnerability so publicly, and many other topics that only Joel could dive into so effortlessly. Without any further delay, here is my chat with Joel. Hi, Joelle. Thank you for chatting with me today. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. Well, we've been talking for an hour before we even started recording. This is true. Because, yo, you have a lot of dough shit to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you, though. Thank so you. Do you. <laughs> you are just great. Uh, so for those of you listening, um, our mutual friend Erica kind of just like tagged. She tagged Joelle on a post that I made on Instagram. Where I was like, hey, I want to start interviewing men. And she tagged him and I realized that I had already been following him on Twitter. And yeah. if you aren't following him, you can just go to Joel, a.k.a. Mag. And uh, he is just like one of those people that has like quotes on quotes on quotes that are like retweet, retweet, retweet. <laughs> he just has such good things to say. And I was like, hey, this is the guy I'm following on Twitter. I want to interview him. And here we are. And he's even better in person. <laughs> he has like, yo, his energy's on fire. He's so dope. Thank you, Kat. You're awesome. <laughs> so are you, man. Like, I'm in awe. Um, so, Joel, you are a native New Yorker. Yes, absolutely. You are a Bronxite. For real. For sure. And I want to know, what was it like growing up in the Bronx? Born in the 80s, born in 83 in the Bronx. Um, where do I start? Hip-hop. Hip-hop played a really big part in, in, in my upbringing. My, um, my older brother, D. Shout out to D. Uh, D was, I remember like him having a, the L.O. Cool J Walk Like a Panther album. And outside of that, you know, a lot of New Jack swings. So like Bobby Brown, 45s of uh, Every Little Step. And us dancing in the living room. Saturday mornings of him putting the speakers out on in front of the window and battling his hip-hop against the freestyle music that was being played across the street. Um, uh, open fire hydrants, uh, shootouts, basketball, milk crates, uh, block parties. Um, and you know, I, I think about there's a, there's a Jay-Z line, um, when he's dissing Nas and he's like, um, you like basically saying like, you know, you, you were looking out the window, scribbled what you were seeing in your notepad and created your life. Like you weren't really the person in the streets. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of friends who were like in the streets, but I was the person who essentially would be like watching from the window. A because my mom was kind of like not strict, but kind of strict as fuck. So like mm -hmm. I couldn't cross the street until I was in fifth grade and I lost my first girlfriend because of that. Shout out to Carla. Um, but the idea of being able to soak up like a sponge, what was happening in that environment. Um, and again, you have like this, 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 
there's so much of an actual melting pot happening. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like growing up between like goat meat and maduros and like all these other things, like all these actual very specific flavors, mm-hmm. but then also the flavors of the people. Um, you know, like I grew up in a primarily like Caribbean environment. So like Dominican, Puerto Rican, um, Haitian, um, Dominican, because my mom is from Dominica. Mm-hmm. And having that kind of um, create the culture within me, um, mm-hmm. I think was a really big part. Like the Bronx is everything to me. Like the Bronx is, I write I write for the Bronx. I think I write in the, the, the spirit and like language of the Bronx, mm-hmm. essentially. So growing up was pretty cool. It's just so interesting that you say all of that because like we were talking about before, a lot of people opt out of the Bronx. Like that's just mm-hmm. some place they don't go. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, white fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I <laughs> I mean, which was attributed to a majority of the problems in the world, but I guess that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. I um it's like <sighs> I always find it interesting when I'm on the D train and I I know when I'll see pe- like I'll see a, an overabundance of white people get on and I know like the Yankees are playing. Um, and then because they all get it for 161st. Or if you're on the 4 train, it's the same deal. They'll get it for 161st. Though they'll like leave in 125th or 145th because that's normally where people stop. Um, and you kind of see the population of people on the train change. I think people still have this aberrant fear of the Bronx of the 80s. You know, we talk about the history of the Bronx. People normally tend to think about the South Bronx, A, because that's the cultural birthplace of hip hop. And also, too, there was just a lot of culture there in general. We talk about Fab Five Freddy going back and forth from the Bronx to the Lower East Side and and, and traveling with art with Keith Haring and, like, bringing Basquiat to the Bronx and mm-hmm. what that looked like in the 80s. Um, but the South Bronx essentially was also the area where, like, you had the burnt-down buildings. There was a lot of white flight that happened in the 70s and mm-hmm. late 60s, thanks to Robert Moses. Shout-out to that fucktard who essentially created a big-ass bridge in the Bronx that leveled a lot of buildings and created a lot of the disparity that we see now in the neighborhoods um the cross town bronx expressway being the like essentially what was created to bring people to and fro the bronx Mm -hmm. but then also built it right smack dab in the middle in the heart of the bronx um so when you, you you look at that you realize that people are still fearful of this bronx that's non-existent anymore um and granted every area i think has this level of danger but i think and part of like and part of my work has been trying to get more people to come to the Bronx. There's a level of fear, and that's something we also speak about because the more people I think come to the Bronx, the more people realize, wow, the rent is less expensive, the apartment space is bigger because the buildings are still World War Two built. So, oh, two bedroom is an actual two bedroom. Um, people people live in this past fear of it, and also people are living in what they've been told mm-hmm. and what they've seen on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to experiencing the Bronx for themselves, going to the Bronx Museum of Art, mm-hmm. going to the Bronx Zoo, you know what I'm saying? Going to Wall War, um, excuse me, Wall Works in, in the South Bronx area. Um, there's so much happening. Like even my like my daughter, Lila, she's in ballet class at Sweetwater. Sweetwater Yoga is right on 163rd and Gerard Avenue in the mm-hmm. Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yoga, ballet, pole dancing. Like there's like, there are things happening. The Botanical Gardens, like there's so much here. Yeah. Um, that I just want and wish people would experience more of. So for those who can't physically go there, like in what ways do you think that they can experience some of the art or like get to know the real accounts of people who live there? Mm, I think some of that comes with um, research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, uh, part of i love exploring the borough in that way and that doesn't necessarily even mean going to a local restaurant and eating there but just canvassing the neighborhood and just like seeing people um and just trying to be aware and i think i, I benefit from being a writer in that way because i'm always looking for ways to be inspired and the bronx inspires me all the time because the people are always navigating the world in a very different way than a person navigates the world who lives in like chelsea or soho or yeah. like a park slope you yeah. know yeah. um for a person, for the layman, for the layman who maybe doesn't live in the Bronx or maybe isn't from the Bronx, um, I think Rumble Kings is actually a good documentary to watch. It essentially kind of tells the history of the Bronx gangs starting in like the sixties and the seventies, and then it kind of towards the end makes the foray into like hip hop and how that changed. Mm-hmm. But like that flavor and that nuance of the Bronx still very much exists, mm-hmm. um, and. I think it's, and even now, just thinking about it out loud, it's so interesting because you'll see, you know, like, you'll see, like, 
abuelitas walking the street and you're kind of wondering what their history is. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like you'll see old Jamaican black grandmothers and wonder, were they around when the Shower Posse came around? The Shower Posse was like the notorious Jamaican gang that kind of ran the northern section of the Bronx from like the late 70s, 80s, like a lot of the cocaine trade that was coming from Miami mm-hmm. like and being brought to the Bronx in that way. And so a lot of a lot of the people's attachment is to this kind of Bronx again, like yeah. drug culture, drug elements, violence. Yeah. Um, but just do the research. Rumble Kings is a good place to start. Rumble Kings, no mm-hmm. So we all know you for your writing, your amazing writing. Thank you, thank you very much. Which I will absolutely get into. I want to know all the things about the inspiration <laughs> the and like your creative process. <laughs> but I want to know if you always knew that you wanted to be a writer. Is this something that you were very aware of at a young age, or did you want to be something else before? Absolutely, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, and not necessarily not necessarily like I'm going to be a writer, mm-hmm. but. Since since I knew how to actually write and create thing from that writing, mm-hmm. like outside of just learning how to write sentences, like around the time second grade rolled around, I had a poetry book. I was writing in it. I would, um, you know, my mom used to sleep on the couch a lot of the times in our old apartment. And so what I would do is in her bedroom, I would just create stories like that's where I created like my imaginary band called Instrumental. They were great. Mm-hmm. Um, like I created a film series in that bedroom. I had album art and album covers and we had a rival band called the skyscrapers and like we went on tour together and like so dope. it was the idea of me being able to create these like fairy tales for me you know and like i started rapping in that bedroom like because i loved hip-hop so mm-hmm. much and i would forget the words to the songs that i would um that, that, that would like be performing in my mom's room so i would have to make the words up so that's how i learned how to freestyle because i would just have to keep trying to find rhythmic ways to use words and to use language. You know, I was writing for the school newspaper in fourth grade. My man, Rasheen, hit me up on Facebook one day and was like, yo, I don't know if you remember back in third grade, I used to ask you to write rhymes for me that I would give the girls. I did not remember that. But, you know, like writing was just writing the performance art, you know, was something that was very important to me. When I played Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in second grade, I remember (laughs) I I would tell people that, like, I was... That I was the uh, reincarnated version of MLK. Um, so like even we'd be playing like two-hand touch football on the block and like cats would be trying to fight. I'd be like, come on, y'all. y'all we, need to, we need to get along, y'all. We need to be a people together. And it's like, yo, shut the fuck up, dog. Pass the ball. Um, so like for me, it was always out, like art. Like I am my art. I've yeah. been the living embodiment of my art since I knew how to make it to be honest. Mm. And I'm assuming that this was therapeutic for you in a lot of ways. Oh my God, absolutely. Like, you know, there's a certain level of escapism. I think we all as creatives, because we're all creative, you know, I think there's a difference between creatives and artists. I think creatives, we're creative in the way that we cook, we'll create, we can be creative in the way that we crochet, clean, whatever the case might be. But as an artist, there's something very therapeutic, something very much um, rooted and not just escapism, but also being able to channel any of the angst, pain, um, the things that I had witnessed growing up, whether it was like the emotional, sexual abuse, violence in the neighborhood, um, being able to take those things and make something out of it. You know, and performance art was a, played a very big part in that, like acting and theater essentially mm-hmm. were um, were pathways for me. Definitely saved my life mm-hmm. um, by, by no stretch of the imagination. Writing. Mm-hmm. Writing was also like a conduit of that, and like it's very been very seasonal for me in that regard since I was like seven. Like sometimes I was more focused on acting and theater, other times I was more focused on emceeing, other times it was more spoken word poetry stuff. You know, it's like always kind of springing back to and fro between these worlds and becoming very comfortable with being a chameleon in that way. Wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, how did you cultivate all of those different aspects of yourself in the Bronx? <laughs> like acting yeah. let's say like yeah. were you doing that were, were you taking classes where you lived or not not in so like you know i you know this is why i think teachers are teachers do god's work essentially you know um like i can tell you second grade was i'm okay i can't remember what i did in third grade um i was normally like the narrator in plays and stuff like these little you know elementary school shows whatever mm-hmm. and then sixth grade came and like we talked about this like you were in a gifted program mm-hmm. i was also in the gifted program in middle school mm-hmm. pace academy shout out to miss petrosky who retired miss petrosky was my sixth she was our sixth grade like elective teacher 
because like you could choose music you could choose art or you could choose drama and i was like oh, i'm definitely choosing drama i've been like I've, you know i feel like I, I like to act it's fun yeah and for some reason i took to it there are other people who didn't you know in elementary school for whatever reason there were some people who like just liked being on stage because they liked the attention and i did but there was something else that was kind of speaking to me and i don't know what that thing is i'll never be able to explain that to anybody i think there are people who write like we all write then why do certain people choose to be writers the same way why do certain people choose to be astronauts i don't know mm. um but sixth grade came and miss Wachowski just had a lot of faith in me she would a she was impressed at the speed in which i could memorize monologues which is always the funny thing when people who are new to acting it's like how do you memorize all those monologues it's like trust me that's the least that's the least of the worries like mm-hmm. dialogue like learning words is like the least of my problems mm-hmm. um but sixth grade rolled around the seventh grade rolled around she's like listen i want you to star in greece so we did greece the musical we also did inherit the wind um wow. like there were so many like cool things that she wanted us to do and then i remember when it came for eighth grade i mean i was smart but i wasn't necessarily like the book smart person like i wasn't going to get into bronx science i definitely wasn't going to get into like environmental science or any other like the stuyvesant like the smart kid schools mm-hmm. i was like i need to get into LaGuardia high school because if i do not i'm not going to clinton i'm damn sure i'm not going to roosevelt high school because they will murder me there mm-hmm. um Miss Wachowski was like, you're going to audition for LaGuardia and you're going to audition with like some Shakespearean monologues, which is what they tell you not to do. You should never audition with a soliloquy because they don't feel like you're ready enough for the work. I remember auditioning, going in and then being like, I didn't, I didn't think I made it. So I left early and I got a call for Miss Pierce, who who's also retired. But I remember Miss Pierce calling the house and being like, why did you leave? We wanted to see you back for another round. I went back. I did some. Uh, I did a couple of Walter Lee monologues from *Raising in the Sun*, and I got in. And I remember, like *Laguardia*, changed my life in such a dramatic way because a it was the first time I've been around white people who were my peers. Like I had white student friends, and also I had never really had a, a friend or knew people who were queer who identified as queer. Just was never, in a, especially in the Bronx. Like mm-hmm. I just didn't see it. Granted, I I think about. Uh, Lewis, who I used to go, who I went to kindergarten with, and you know, for all intents and purposes, like when we were playing baseball and football, Lewis was the one who was taking the shoes off and jump roping. And I remember, and even now, and I think about, I remember making us making fun of him about that, and and thinking now, like how, like how ridiculous children can be about like people that don't do the same things that they do. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, but being in high school and just kind of being able to see how art was changing people's lives and like i was appreciative of it because you had kids who had their parents had taken them to musicals and some of their parents were like acting coaches and in the industry my mom worked my mom was a single mother who worked at jacoby hospital for 20 some odd years providing for three young black boys in like the crack era of the 80s and reaganomics so my mom didn't have time to like put us in acting schools i remember mm-hmm. i could have taken tap in like fourth grade my mom was like how much do those, like how much do those shoes cost like that was those kinds of convo- yeah. conversations. Yeah. My mom took us to see Serafina. Like she, she tried. Like she took I she, us, her taking us to like the Disney's ice capades and shit like that. But rambling. The idea though of being able to have that opportunity, like in middle school, a lot of that was because of Miss Petrovsky. Miss Petrovsky seen something in me then and saying, "You need to audition for LaGuardia. You're gonna get in. I know you're gonna get in because you're that good." Um, and so being able to then go into high school and just honestly recognizing how good I was and being able to say, okay, what what's next? Mm-hmm. Theater is so important. I think if there's ever an opportunity, it has to start young. Um, being able to, especially in areas and underserved areas, quote unquote underprivileged areas where like theater may not be happening. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is like recognizing now like the open hygiene company in the Bronx. Like they're they're near Hunts Point. Like I performed with them maybe a few years ago. Like there are things happening in the Bronx, and it's like it, part of that is making sure our children have access to it at a very early age, mm-hmm. so that they can explore the range of art. Because I had white friends who were listening to Bob Dylan. I didn't know who the fuck Bob Dylan was until high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I, even jazz. I wasn't listening to jazz in high school, like until high school. Like the Coltrane's of the world. You know what I'm saying? Like. The, the 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 monks of the world you know what i'm saying like that that wasn't something i was having conversations about until i met other people outside of my normal my normal circle mm. and so how has the confidence that you essentially like um the confidence that was fed in high school how did that 
pour over into your adult life and when you decided like i'm gonna create mm. and i'm gonna put my my art out into the world like was there ever any doubt that came about that or were, was it always something that was like no i'm gonna do this i have the the capabilities to do it this doubt now really absolutely i i still am doubtful that people receive the work in the ways in which i want them to i am very neurotic i get very anxious I question myself and my abilities often. Um, but also that's part of the work. Mm-hmm. You know, like part of the challenge for me is to challenge myself in that way. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been a process. I'll say that much. Um, and that process has been filled with, you know, like depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideations, if we're being completely one on it. Mm-hmm. And, learning how to navigate those spaces, but also recognizing that art has allowed me to reach people in a way that I've never thought possible. Social media has also created that avenue for me. Um, And that confidence kind of comes from, it comes from within because it it also, it's very easy to base that confidence on other people's response to the art. Yeah. um, Which is very, it's a very slippery slope because if people aren't responding to the art and if you're, if your confidence is based and centered around other people's confidence in you, that becomes very problematic, especially when there aren't people to do that, to like boost your ego, kind of put the battery in back, so to speak. Um, So, I mean, I think part of that confidence in, in the work is, I think it's spiritual. I think it's grounded in like recognizing that I've been given a gift um, and honoring that gift. Um, I do a disservice to that gift if I do not, proceed to use that gift in a way that uplifts community and also um builds myself up mm-hmm. and me not me not trusting in that is doing a disservice and dishonoring the creator i feel like mm-hmm. um for those who maybe are atheists who don't believe in that then i think part of that is also just recognizing that if your work is of service to people and if people are receiving the work that is enough really and even if the work is even if no one is receiving the work if you making the work allows you to wake up honestly allows you to get through another day without feeling some type of way about yourself then it's worth it and then like there 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 can be confidence in that when you're going through your creative ruts or when you're doubting your work and you're in the midst of it how do you how do you recharge and how do you center yourself i try to sit in it Mm. um you know buddhist practice will teach you that the more you try to run from the pain, like we're all going to experience pain, right? Like that's just kind of the way the world works. It's impossible not to. The suffering comes from the attachment to the pain. Mm -hmm. So the constant either trying to run from that pain that's existent and, and trying to get away from it or the pushing it to the side um, meditation is so interesting because people have difficulty meditating because they're like expecting to be this quiet, peaceful person throughout the entire 10, 15, 30 hour minute, whatever hour long process. And it's like, it's not how it works. The idea is that the thoughts are going to come. You're supposed to recognize those things, let them happen and bring yourself back to the space. And you're probably going to have to do that again and again and again. And life is no different. Um, you know, when I remember being in therapy, my therapist telling me like, you know, negative thoughts are like clouds, which essentially means like you see them and you recognize them for what they are and then you let them pass mm-hmm. because that's what they're going to do. Um, it all feels very permanent, um, but it's not. Nothing is permanent. Right. Everything is like we're all kind of in this transient space of moving. And the more we can kind of accept that, the easier it does become. And for me, when I'm in those kind of ruts, it's like, OK. I can like trying to figure out where, why am I in the space? Where did it come from? Where, where, and when did it start? And it doesn't mean that it solves it, but what it does mean, it gives me some clarity and gives me a foundation to work from. And then, so I'll, you know, I'll take a walk, you know, I'll read, um, you know, listening to music helps having great conversation helps, um, art. So going to a museum, being, being in a library, um, spending time with my daughter, like Lila does a really good job of like, okay, how present, how present am I? Yeah. Um, whether it's intentional or, 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 um, unintentional, like she forces me to kind of 
always be present in the moment. So mm-hmm. even if there's pain there, my job is to kind of go, okay, it's here, it's present, I'm here for it, all right? Knowing that that's not going to last and just being okay with that, which is incredibly difficult. I make it seem way easier than it is, and it's not. But yeah. that's the process. So I want to get back to therapy and um, social media, which mm-hmm. you mentioned. But I want to talk about Lila, and I want to talk about, well, first of all, she is beautiful. Thank you. She, I know. She, oh my gosh, she's a beautiful <laughs> little human being. She is. She and, is. Um, you know, she's impacted your world, obviously, in, <laughs> in a million ways. How, how did your creative mind change once you had this beautiful being enter your life who i'm sure brought about all these emotions and all these ideas into your mind is it something where like she came into your life and now you all you wanted to do was write about her and like your your experience your new experience as a father yeah. that's what it happened i'm assuming um yes and no i think initially Yes, because it was me trying to process this new experience as a father. And for me, it's very, it, it partially became like a, a call of duty for me because I recognized I was in a very divine position as a black man who was a father to an Afro-Latina. And I mean, what does that look like? Um, from my perspective, like from a, and I don't want to say positive because I don't, I don't want to attach that to like the work that I was doing, but coming from a space of like openness mm. um, and recognizing that the conversations that tend to happen with men of color who are fathers are not always the most positive or not always the, uh, for lack of a better word, enlightened. Um, and so I just wanted to explore that space and also wanted to be able to give other men of color that opportunity to be like, you know, part of my friends like this nigga's being mad vulnerable so like what does that look like yeah that's what i want to know like yeah. how did you do you feel like this has drawn out a completely different vulnerability in your life yeah for sure i think i mean if i'm being honest i there was i was always somewhat a little more feminine you know what i'm saying like and i don't know if that comes from like having a loving mother or what i was just always a little more sensitive than like dudes i grew up with mm-hmm. um and I, and the older i've gotten the easier it's been to embrace it as opposed to kind of trying to cover it up with like some sort of like chauvinistic showing yeah of like yeah like like pulling my dick out like this yeah. is who i am like yeah. machismo bullshit mm-hmm. um but what lila has allowed me to do is um it, it explore I don't, she's opened up a new level of like vulnerable, I think for me, um, because she's also made me question things within myself. Um, much honestly, if I'm being completely being fair, like much in the same way, her mother has also done that. You know, we were talking about like challenge, like people challenging you, um, and, but in good ways, like good ways for like growth and like the constant challenge of patience i used to think i was really patient i used to think i was super patient no not patient at all i'm like i am but like those relationships challenging how patient i can be and how empathetic i can be um you know i like the i think the most important we can one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves of ourselves is like how can i be of service and so I constantly find myself asking that, like, how can I be of service in this relationship to this person, to this daughter, to this co-parent? Um, and those are where the nuggets are. I think that's where the juice is, um, the, 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 that practice of empathy. Like, how much can I take self out of this? And removal of self does not mean you are then self, completely selfless and you lose yourself, but it's the opportunity to say, how can I invoke more of spirit into this work and into this relationship while also still remaining faithful and true to my own value system and ethics? Mm. Um, and Lila, because she's just incredibly inquisitive and curious and open, just allows me to just kind of practice. Like, she's my best practice because even 
what I tell people now, especially if I meet or encounter people who are going to be parents, especially for others, is like it, it is such a divine opportunity because we essentially create the world for our children. So like we're looking at a table. This is a table. We've known this as a table. This is what has been established. If I told Lila that this was a rainbow from the time that she was one years old, at this point, she would think that this was a rainbow because I've told her that I've created this world for her. So like when Lila says like if the like when she says the moon is awake, that's something I taught her. Because it's like the sun goes to sleep, the moon is awake, and then like vice versa when it's daytime. Like I create this world for her, mm. and that's a very beautiful thing, and also a very dangerous thing because that power in the wrong hands creates like the white supremacist supremacists who like names their child Klansman. True story. Which yes, right? yeah, I saw that. Crazy. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like just dooming your child to be like a fucktard. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing like there's a glorious position that she's put me in and so for me it's also like there's always an opportunity not just with her like i can create this new world for other people through the art as well if i want to yeah and so you you released a book called a book about things i will tell my daughter mm-hmm. and it i mean it's just their affirmations and beautiful things you're gonna that you know like you want your daughter to see and be exposed to but I'm curious to know how men have responded to this book because I I don't know of any other man who's done this. So like you're the f- in at least in my world and to my knowledge you're the first man that's get, that's put out a book for other men to see and relate to and make sense of. And I'm really curious to know like what the response has been from them. I I think um what's been most intriguing has actually been less about the book and more about my presence on social like i get dms from brothers at least a few times a month about not just a not just the book but like just random questions about relationships about love um and about navigating the space and what makes me happy is that with like through the book as well but trying to create a platform where there's more openness and more dialogue about like how men feel about shit and being honest with those feelings, because when you're not honest with those feelings, that's when you create an environment that's very toxic to women. So what does that look like? Um, you know, I've had brothers come to me about the book being like, yo, you know, because now I want to write my own book or I've been working on my book about like my daughter or like my own book of poetry, whatever the case is. And I think what's been intriguing is this scene brothers be willing to be more open or at least having be willing to have the conversation about being open and like the fear surrounding that and i think part of that is less about the actual content of the book but more in relation to the person who's created the book and created a space for something like that book to be made Mm. um because i think that conversation is like oh this brother's made a book about his daughter that's really cool what else can I have a conversation with this brother about in regards to like whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm processing. Like I had a brother hit me up about um, like his girl leaving him and trying to like him trying to figure out why what happened to me being me and like, dog, like, cause you, you fucked up like a B and C happened or whatever. And a lot of that comes from my own fuck ups, which are plentiful. Um, but I think the book has created space for brothers to at least see that, oh, like, this dude is open enough to have a conversation about how much he loves his daughter. Like, what else? So it's almost like you've subconsciously given them permission. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, it's been like mm-hmm. a catalyst, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. not to take credit for it, because that also feels like really, like... Not on, on purpose, yeah, but just yeah. by living in your truth. Right, you, right. You've been lead- leading by example. Yeah, I think so. Do I hope f- so. Do you feel comfortable being kind of put in a position where people are coming to you for advice men in particular like Mm. coming to advice with regard to love and relationships Mm. and romance and you know all of this like is this something you were looking for i think so yeah i think part of me has always kind of embraced a platform in that way i've always said not always because that's not true but as of recent i've been saying you know if people are gonna have conversations about race and about um gender uncomfortable conversations i do feel like i'm the best like not the best person by any stretch of the imagination but i do think i i feel like a qualified person because i don't i'm not 
I don't really adhere to a policy of like my truth being the only truth. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of stuff that's important for us to be able to navigate spaces that are uncomfortable. Like there's still there's still language I'm not clear I'm not I don't have enough clarity about when we talk about the queer community and like how people identify. You know, and I'm still processing that because it's really important for me to be able to process that mm-hmm. and have conversations with like any individual that identifies in whichever which so way they choose to and making sure that they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember at one point on Twitter, I remember just kind of opening up the floor like, listen, if you if you're going through something, um, DM me or hit me on my email. And then like I got like about maybe like 40 responses. So it took me like about a week and a half to kind of get through everybody because I wanted to make sure I was giving people like very, very descriptive answers that pertain to the thing that they were going through. And whether that been like suicide, breakup, domestic violence situations. And it was heavy. But I mean, I also, you know, I, I worked in social services for a while. You know, I spent like a good seven, seven years like being being a community community liaison for the forensic population specifically folks who have gotten released from Rikers who also suffer from like some sort of like mental health disorder um and then before that I was doing HIV AIDS case management and a lot of that is like social work centric the idea of looking at what ails a person or like their problems and trying to find a solve essentially helping them navigate that space and find a solve for themselves so that's something that's always and I think my art is also part of that like my art I, I like creating platforms for other people. Like I like connecting dots with people. I like bringing people together. And so a part of me embraces that heavily, being able to be the person that people go to for not just advice, but for, um, I guess it means the same thing, but like clarity. Mm-hmm. Like I embrace it. I enjoy it. Um, it's because it's easy. It's, it, it just, it, it comes easy to me, I think. Mm, that's a gift. That's a gift. And, if there's anything that I've realized is that people are just looking to be heard and understood. Absolutely. And I mean, women are, are going through their own transitions of like creating mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. and being there Absolutely. for each other and yeah, like yeah. really trying to like eliminate this idea of competitiveness. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't really see that being something that's like promoted for men. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that men don't need it. Uh- Right. Because clearly they do. Absolutely. It, yeah. So how do so how do you go about doing that in a way that's like not just putting all the pressure on like one individual like yourself? Like how how should men go about opening up space so that there could be more collaborative dialogue and like openness and vulnerability because that is essentially like what we need in order to like get rid of this toxic masculinity and mm-hmm. like you know for men to begin healing so that they can mm-hmm. be you know good fathers and right. you know not promote this like crazy way of living but like yeah. how do they how do they go about doing that i think um part part of it for me is like there are like you know i got homies who prime example my man and i were having a conversation recently about uh one of our other friends who's like older and about to have a child it's like a really big deal. Um, and him being like, oh, man, I hope you don't have a daughter because, you know, he, he was doing some, you know what I'm saying? Like, A, he's probably going to be mad, super strict because of all the shit that he he done went through with the opposite sex and whatever, whatever. And I was like, you know, I just don't know if that's just, like, true. And I think, you know, like, people talk about the sins of the father. And I've always just been like, listen, I don't. I think we have to kind of reframe how we talk about karma because even in the Buddhist tradition, karma is not necessarily like if you do this, then this is going to come back to you. It's not that. It's more about this is like life has life is a cycle. And so you live life, you make decisions. There are consequences to those decisions. But it's one thing to say, like, I cheated on my partner. And so now and I was just horrible to women. Right. Unforgivable. Um, But. Now, because I have a daughter, she's also gonna have to. She's gonna have to go through that same thing. No, you create an environment of stability and love and support. Then that's, if anything, you're you're create as long as you create an environment that's not indicative of your past. Then he or she, whomever, will be fine. Mm. And so I bring that up because I think it's part part of that is the brother who feels a certain type of way about openness or being vulnerable, having those conversations with his homies who maybe aren't, and being honest with them, like. You know, if your man comes to you about some about some fuck shit, being like your dog, that's some fucked up shit. I don't know why you feel that way. 
Um, and then having being able to give him the space to also be like, yo, I love you. Like, you know, I'm constantly telling my, my, my man's in them that I love him. You know what I'm saying? Um, I have friends who don't like hugs. Sorry. You know, I'm a hugger. That's what I do. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like my brother and I, we kiss each other on the cheek because it's like, I love him. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so the older I've gotten, the less inhibited I've been about showing my love and admiration for, for, for men. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And like what that means and what that looks like and not being afraid of that behavior being questioned. Cause I've had it questioned. Like I've been, I've been on the opposite end of that where I've had, you know, I've, I've, I've had my sexuality questioned yeah. because like I'm too soft or I'm too sensitive or whatever the case might be. And it's like ego, ego would respond to that and be like, what the fuck is your problem? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> non egos, it's like, I mean, okay i mean i'm not bothered by it because i'm not so Mm -hmm. it's all good and so i just like i just like leaning into that space so the more we as men can lean into that space and have those hard conversations with other brothers who maybe aren't as willing to because that's a natural state of humanness like we've attributed like softness and being vulnerable to like the feminine energy which is fine but it's not like it's it's impossible for men or it's or that it's like not just human right like it's a humanist response and we've been taught that it's not and so like part of that is kind of detangling it yeah and i think that is so important as a matter of fact i don't know if you saw online that that video that went viral it was these two baseball players in the dugout um one of the baseball players his mother had just passed away during his game he his mom had just passed away uh I, two Dominican men mm. and um, one of the players was like rubbing his head mm. and like massaging his head and mm. the player whose mother had passed away was kind of like collapsed over him yeah, yeah. kind of just like leaning into him mm-hmm. and ESPN like while that was happening was like oh look at them giving a head massage and doing this and saying like these mm. really weird things like framing it in a way that was like really interesting gotcha. and on Twitter everybody was kind of just like this just goes to show you because under they i think somebody posted the video and under the video a whole bunch of men just started going in on the homophobic comments Mm. and saying this and that and like not even realizing that his mother had passed away and that is an absolute normal response you're gonna help that you're gonna you're gonna try to be there for somebody who's going through Mm -hmm. pain but like also why was this image of a man rubbing a a grieving man's head homophobic like um why why did it merit homophobic comments and it started to create a whole dialogue of like well when was Mm. the last time a man saw this like a Mm. visual representation Mm -hmm. of like tenderness between men Mm -hmm. that was not attributed to sexuality but more so just like humanness right and and that's such a beautiful display of that and i think it's so important and you know that's a whole nother conversation about homophobia and like how um (laughs) like how a lot of what's been like a lot of what's especially when we look at fashion like cis men and like that comes from like comes from the queer community yeah (laughs) um and what and again that's a whole nother conversation about like again masculinity and kind of the practice and the work of a being able to be like again not adhering to a truth but then also questioning like People adopt these things as a truth and don't even question why it's a truth. Yeah. Like when we go back to this table concept, like why do we call this a table? And why does it matter that we call it a table? Because people need labels. Like yeah. labels are important. But at the same time, it's like, why like why is it not okay for a woman to dress however she wants to dress? Why is it uncomfortable for you to see two men kissing or like showing affection to each other? Like why? And if you can't answer that, then you need to kind of dig deeper. Like, I I think children are the best example of that. You know, Lila is not really at this place yet where she's like, why, 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 why? But she does ask why sometimes. And I think the more we can look at the world of this children, the easier the life life would be. Yeah, ask why. Ask why, literally, and then keep asking why. Like, why? if Lila's asking, like, why is the sun yellow? And I had some scientific explanation for it, which I do not because I'm not that smart. But if I did, I'd be like, okay, blah, 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 blah. And then she'd be like, why? And I'd be like, well, because, you know, molecules come together. And then she'll probably be like, why? Like, keep asking why till you get to the truth, Mm, you know? And then, like, deal with that. But until you can actually ask the question and give an answer, shut up. Mm -hmm. So you alluded to therapy earlier. And, um, you know, I think that in the recent years, um, being more transparent about 
uh, therapy and seeking help has become more common but in spaces with people of color more particularly men of color it's not very common and it is still very taboo but i want to know in your particular uh, case like how how has therapy impacted the way that you move in the world therapy was amazing um you, you said something earlier that, that i think is really important for all of us to kind of keep in mind and it's the idea that everybody everybody just wants to be heard and therapy for me was just a great opportunity to kind of a unbuckle my pants expel and and talk through these things and not have a a person interject their opinions their thoughts their feelings on the matter and also just giving me the room to say those things without judgment um and without bias or prejudice attached to it and that was probably the most important part of it more than anything else it was me having the freedom to kind of just say and speak without a person being like like me talking to him going but, but wait, wait i don't understand like no like giving me the agency to just feel my things to sort through my things in that hour mm. and them not trying to give me an answer for it, you know, like the best kind of therapy is more like, so what I'm hearing is blah, 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 blah. And then also being like, is that true? Me saying yes or no. And then them being saying, well, that f- I hear this and what comes to my mind is that it, like it becomes an even exchange of dialogue and thought that doesn't have the the judgment attached to it, which then allows a person to kind of feel free like and that freedom is so essential to being able to walk through the world and also for me gave me more empathy for other people who are walking through the world who do not have that space do not have access to therapy who do not know how to access therapy who are fearful of accessing therapy because of the stigma attached to it as especially coming from men black men men of color particular um you know like I remember even trying to find a new therapist and trying to find a black male therapist and how difficult that was. Where did you go to find to find Well my first well when I um I forget the website I used, but I mean it was honestly it was as simple as Google search. Mm. And my first my first therapist was a um was a woman ther- was a woman therapist and then my second stint um was actually a white male. Um both actually white white woman, white male. Um, and you know, I'm definitely pro, like for me, it is important to have a therapist who is a person of color, but what I will say, it's probably more important to have a person who's empathetic mm-hmm. because then that person is not going to, I mean, that person is not going to say dumb shit. I think a lot of the times what we worry about when we're going to, in, into, into white spaces is a person leaning on their past prejudices or biases and then that creating that level of conversation does not feel like it's effective and might potentially even be toxic as opposed to a person who's empathetic essentially and who could also look at their privilege if that becomes a topic of conversation in the session Mm -hmm. and also being okay with that Mm -hmm. um that that requires a very special person but they are out there so Mm -hmm. like for me it's always been like yes seek seek a person of color therapist because a you want to support that business if that's exactly what you want to do and i think that's important but it's most important to find a good therapist who's empathetic i think that is the most important thing the same way i've also always felt like and granted this is a completely separate tangent but like when we talk about black art and for me in black business i'm not going to support black business if it's not good black business i don't care if it's and i don't i'm not going to support black art if it's to me whack Mm -hmm. if it's not supporting the community if it's not doing something for the community i'm not going to be like support it just because it's black Mm -hmm. make it like it has to be good good is my is like my qualitative measure yeah measurement um and so like therapy is the same thing like i would rather it be a person of color but i would also rather they be good at what they do yeah that's a really important thing to know uh, before we started recording, we were talking about social media and like, you know, like the great aspects of it. But as uh, many people who are listening and who have listened to previous episodes know, many people do not know how to navigate social media. They don't know how to make social media work for them. And instead, they are being suffocated by all of these images and what comes with it. 
And I think that you may have some answers <laughs> or advice on how we can navigate social media because it has completely changed your world and Absolutely. has connected you with the am- amazing community. Yeah. And has, has done that for me to some extent. But I want to know how it is that you separate your real life from social media and like how you don't let it consume your days. Mm. I think it's a really good question. I think... Um so part of part of the work, I think, also too, is not I haven't I don't really create a distinction between social life and real life. I look at I look at you and I as an example, like meeting on social media, media, right? Like you are a human being. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we try to detach people's personalities from their social media lives. Granted, there might be some FOMO attached. You might be seeing the best part of people's lives, mm-hmm. but you're still seeing a part of their lives. Even on Twitter, um, you know. I can't front. I judge people about what they tweet. I also judge people about what they don't tweet. I think the same way I I can judge people by what they post on Instagram, what they don't post on Instagram. I think, um, for me, like, prime example, like, I'm not on IG anymore. Like, my profile's active, but I'm not, I've committed to, like, not posting potentially ever again. Um, because for me, and again, I can only speak for myself, but for me, it was becoming toxic. Like, it was, I was comparing and contrasting, like, what was happening far too often. I wasn't, I was kind of getting into the habit, it felt like, of trying to create content as opposed to making art. And granted, you can do both. Art can be content and vice versa. But I realized that I was too focused on likes and um, people commenting and as opposed to this is what, this is the art that I want to make. And also being attached to the need to share because the need to share came from the, from the need to get a response from people and realizing my art was becoming more about the response as opposed to the actual creation of it. And so Twitter works for me, you know, for some people, people, some people do not have that problem on IG at all. And I applaud them for it. For me, I couldn't do it. I couldn't scroll past feeds and, you know, while, you know, things are happening in the administration and black bodies are dying. And like, you know, you have, you know, ice separating families and you have indigenous people losing land and all this other shit. And people are just posting like selfies. And and granted, part of that is also recognizing that people deserve to have space to live their lives. Like you have the space and freedom to like take a selfie of yourself. You look good, girl, do it. If you feel like you worked out at the gym, brother, you know what I'm saying? Go ahead. You know, post with a flat tummy tea, whatever you do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and yeah. not trying to knock people for being happy and for celebrating their lives and living their lives, but then also recognizing I was getting frustrated with people who just weren't also creating space for the other things that I felt like mattered just as much. Yeah. Um, and Twitter kind of allows me to not feel that pressure because, and also I, I'm speaking from a place of privilege because I also have a shit ton of followers on Twitter. And so when you have that many amount of followers, People, whether people admit it, admit it or not, social media feeds ego. Like that's yeah. what it does. That's what it's centered around. Because if you didn't care about what other people think or thought, you wouldn't share those thoughts on a social platform for other people to digest and potentially comment on. Yeah. So like, I have a large following that allows me to say things and people respond. Yeah. As opposed to Instagram, where I have like four thousand followers. So sometimes people do, sometimes people don't, mm-hmm. depending on what I post. If it's a picture of my daughter, I knew it was gonna get like three hundred likes. Picture mm-hmm. of my face, and that was another thing. Posting for like. You know, for, for, for like posterity and recognizing that the beauty component is so important, like the visual component is so important. Yeah. And that was getting frustrating. Like, I just wanted people to care about the art and it felt like they cared less about the art and more about how beautiful my daughter was or the fact like I have a gap. Mm-hmm. And like that was attractive. And like mm-hmm. that wasn't sitting well with me to have to play the game of like brand strategy in order to create a following and influence, quote unquote. Yeah. Um. So for me, it's become like healthy detachment. So like I don't like... On face, I don't. I rarely have ever post on Facebook. I don't post on Facebook unless I'm. When I would post on Facebook, I was posting on Facebook through Instagram. Um, I don't have the Instagram app on my phone. I actually do download it sometimes, just because. Prime example, like you DMing me, I wouldn't have gotten that. Like yeah. it's important for me to make sure I can check my DMs for yeah. messages. Same thing with Facebook. I check my messages. Uh, but I don't have either app on my phone. Mm. Um, I have to re-download and like delete Instagram. So I've made that my practice to just do that. Uh, I don't yes. scroll through the feed. I don't do it. And granted, there's a part of that that makes you feel like you're missing mm-hmm. something. Because Facebook is the place where people post about family stuff yeah. or whatever. But I'm okay. 
because of what I realized too is like the people is giving me more room to connect with the people that I care about. Yeah. Um, and it also creates conversation because there are people who post their whole lives through an Instagram story during the course of a day. Like I know what you ate for breakfast. I know what you're doing for lunch. I know where you went that night. What what am I talking to you about? I already know everything you did. Now I gotta Facts. act like I don't know. Facts. Oh word! Oh, you went to the zoo. I know you went to the zoo. Yeah. I saw it. I saw mad pictures of the zoo. But now yeah. I gotta act so yeah. we can have a conversation about some shit. Yeah. It's like nah, man. I was just getting tired of it. And to mm. each his own. But for me, it was like practicing healthy detachment. So that could be a week, maybe. Like if it's a like I know people who have like a social media fast where they just choose not to use social media for twenty four hours. Like I think Zendaya does that. Was like once a month. It's like she just doesn't go on social media, and it seems a lot easier than it actually is. Because I think it's easy for people to forget how connected, unless you don't have a phone. Because there are people like that too. Um, but there's a way to have like that healthy detachment where, like, if it's again a day, a week, maybe you choose one month out of the year. Um, just or even if it's like, yo, I'm just not like. Prime example is I don't take my phone with me when I go on lunch breaks. There's specific times where I just leave my phone. Like if it's for 30 minutes for an hour, I'm not glued to my computer screen on my phone. I'm giving myself time to just invest and ingest the world around me without having to be glued to social media. Mm. Just having to give ourselves time to do that. It took me like 80 hours to get to like the actual tips part of that <laughs> question. But yeah, that those are the kind of things that helped me. Oh, so detachment. Using more more Twitter than anything where it's like thoughts and not like yeah. all visual although there's like great videos that are hilarious there are great stuff. videos but it, but there's something about the actual creation of, like how that platform is built that allows you to scroll i think without necessarily feeling those yeah yeah because it's not as visual so yeah. like it's one thing to like also see people post because that's another thing right like you'll post on instagram Oh, like somebody posts on Instagram, me like I know I texted this motherfucker. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Two hours ago, and you can't, but you, but you got enough to like post a picture with you sipping tea. Text me back. Yeah, I don't have that complication anymore. Mm. I mean, granted, I probably still in the back of my mind I'm thinking that, but not as much. Mm, that's that's also important. So I want to jump into some rapid fire questions. Yay! Okay, what is your favorite time of the day? Morning, noon, or night? night mm. uh favorite kind of food soul food soul food like i mean i specifically like gumbo jambalaya anything like creole based crawfish hush puppies mm. louisiana oh, man. Delicious. new orleans if yeah. you want a million dollars what's the first thing you'd buy i don't know if you can I, I wouldn't buy anything i would put that in the trust fund for lila yes what is your favorite book this is how you lose a Juno Diaz. Ooh, 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 ooh. Uh, what is your favorite self care routine? <laughs> um, walking. 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 Mm. Walking gives me peace of mind. It allows me to clear my thoughts. It it gives me so much room and freedom. Like I love the shit out of walking. Walking is like therapy for me. Mm. What is your favorite place that you've traveled to? New Orleans. Mm, I haven't been. I'm dying to go. Oh, fuck. New Orleans is amazing. I love New Orleans. Really? Like, there's so much spirit there. Like, mm -hmm. you go and you feel, like, you feel heritage. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. Well, it, do you think um, that there's anything that I didn't touch on that you would like to let the peoples know? Um, peoples know. Um, I just want people to love each other more. It was something that we were having a conversation about before we started, like, just being more empathetic. And recognizing that the duality of people doesn't make them evil. I, I think there are good people in the world who do bad things all the time. Mm. I think there are bad people who actually do good things too. Mm. And so what does that mean? I don't know. And I think being okay with not knowing and ha not having a decision about that is also okay. Mm. Wow. That's, that's powerful. That's a very hard thing to understand and grasp. So hard, but then like part of the part of the work is also not being able to grasp it and being okay with it. Yeah. Like this is really confusing and complex. I don't know what it means. Cool, mm. you don't have to. Yeah, are there any projects that are in the works that we should keep a lookout for? Yes. So, I am currently working through um, poems for black people, um, poems for black people, 
and for other people, but mainly for black people. That is the title, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just kind of writing, writing this one man show that I've been working on since like 2015 and really trying to actually get it out and perform it and do it and have it be as successful as Hamilton. Shout out to Lynn. That's the goal. So wow. I feel like the more I speak it, the more I have to actually yes. own it yes. and manifest it. Yes. So. so tours, yeah, book signings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. The goal is to have little black, brown boys and girls feel like, oh, I can do this too. Oh That's my the goal. That's a beautiful goal. And it's very black. It's yes. very black. Yes. So yes. when can we keep a lookout for that? The book hopefully will be, I mean, I'm still shopping the book, right? You know, like I'm not going to self-publish, um, but um, that book hopefully... 2019 um one man show 20 tail end of 2019 2020 i'm right now working on structure and looking at like some dramaturgs and other folks i kind of want to help flesh out the process of like the writing and performance elements of it um and music elements of it as well because there's some music involved but yeah 2020 okay Okay, perfect. Um, well, this was amazing. You are great. You were great. Seriously. Have fun. I, yeah, you're, you're not letting go of me. I'm going to just stick around forever. <laughs> so like, oh, to? Hey, do you want to chat Kat. again? <laughs> I, I absolutely would love to, Kat. Thank, you for, thank you for creating space Always. for me and like people to do this stuff. Always. My pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I've linked all of Joel's social media in the show notes along with a link to purchase his book. And as always, if there's anything shared in this episode that you think someone you love can benefit from, go ahead and share it. And while you're at it, why not just show some love by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show? It'll only take a few moments, I promise. I'm sending you all lots of love, light, and good vibes. We will chat next week.